The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds so that as your scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what you are saying to us this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This fall, here at Fifth Avenue Church, we've been studying the human heart. We've been asking, what are the, what are the basic touchstones that we have that guide us? And, and we've identified things clinging to our hearts that are both unhealthy and harmful. It's been a humbling but not solitary journey. Along the way, we've traveled with one who is determined to replace our toxic affections with better loves, higher loves, loves that are capable of guiding us and grounding us. Today, in the 11th sermon in this fall series, next week, it's the end, number 12, Pledge Sunday, but here we are, week 11, and today our attention turns to truth. The Judeo-Christian tradition places great importance on truth and truth-telling. The concept of, of truth is, is central to the Ten Commandments. Jesus, says the Gospel of John, came into the world full of grace and truth. This morning, we're going to consider our relationship to this ancient virtue. How important is truth to you? When it, when it comes to your civic leaders, to your relationships, to your own internal conversations, what value do you give to truth? What place does it have in your heart? In considering our answers this morning, let us listen together for God's word as it comes to us first from the book of Exodus, the 20th chapter, the 16th verse, a passage otherwise known as the ninth commandment. You shall not bear witness, false witness, against your neighbor. And our second reading this morning comes from Psalm 51. It begins with a superscription that is not printed in your bulletin, and that's my fault. Um, what is a superscription? A, a superscription is a 
short explanatory note that sits on the top of a psalm, and and these superscriptions are actually part of the psalm. They're there in the most ancient manuscripts. They offer musical cues sometimes to those who are singing the psalm. They actually recommend certain instruments be used to to play along with the psalm. And, And sometimes they note the author of the psalm and the context in which the psalm was written. And that's the case today. Listen now for God's word to you as it comes from Psalm 51. To the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You desire says King David in his prayer to God, you desire truth in the inward being. Today, as we talk about truth, I I think we ought to start by fessing up. We are all liars. The great American humorist and novelist Mark Twain once said, human beings are never more truthful than when they admit to being liars. Twain nails it. Anyone who says, I never lie, guess what? Is telling a lie. Psychologists report that we human beings lie a lot. We start when we're about two years old, and we don't stop until breath ceases to cross our lying lips. We lie to our friends and to our families. We lie to coworkers. We lie to perfect strangers. We lie to our doctors and our dentists. How often do you floss? 
Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. We lie to the government. We lie on social media. We lie, and this is an indication, I think, of just how messed up we are. We lie on anonymous surveys. Psychologists and data experts report that around 50% of people lie on blind surveys. Why? Why do we do that? In day-to-day life, in work, at church, In a casual conversation over lunch, we lie with surprising frequency. Some psychologists argue that the average person lies two to three times a day. Others, like Robert Feldman, a research psychologist at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, says that in the average 10-minute conversation, we lie two to three times. How many 10-minute conversations will you have today? Feldman also goes on to report that there are clear gender differences when it comes to lying. In casual conversation, women, Feldman states, tend to lie to make the person to whom they're speaking feel better. No, really, you look great. (laughs) When men lie, says Feldman, it is most often to make themselves feel better. I've really been kicking it at work this week. (laughs) It's amazing how much untruth dances through our discourse, especially given that we spend so much time encouraging each other and especially our children to be truthful. Think of all the stories we tell. George Washington, he never told a lie. Jiminy Cricket, he warns Pinocchio, do not lie or you will face nose-extending consequences. Think of all those little phrases we have, don't gild the lily, never cry wolf. We have so many ways to say it. So why? Why do we rough the truth up so regularly? Well, say psychologists, there are a number of reasons, a number of uh, rationalizations for resorting to lies. Some of us have concluded that lying is is simply a a, a small price to pay to to make progress, to get the job done. It's it's a necessary evil, a, a minor transgression in service to a greater good. Others say that lying is simply a necessary fact of life if you want not to go around creating anger and bitterness everywhere you go. In the movie Liar Liar, Jim Carrey plays Fletcher, a dishonest man, a lawyer, who became, because of his son's magically powerful birthday wish, Someone who had to, was compelled to tell the truth in every situation. Well, chaos ensues. He offends all sorts of people with a rampage of truth-telling. Fletcher leaves such a a, a wreckage of social misconduct in his wake that it's easy to conclude that falsehoods are society's grease. They smooth over our interactions with each other. 
Eventually in the film, we, we see Fletcher pleading with, with his son to try and get some of this grease back in his life. Please, he says, take back the wish. Adults, he explains to the earnest boy, adults have to lie. But dad, says the little guy, your lies make me feel bad. And it's this scene that taps into a profound undercurrent in an otherwise silly movie. The lies that Fletcher have told have harmed the relationships that he has with co-workers, with his wife, with his five-year-old son. The good book gets this. God, we are told, God recognizes the toxic cost of personal dishonesty. In the Ten Commandments, the, the core set of laws that Moses presents as a foundation for Hebrew society, we find a clear admonition against lying. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Dishonesty tears the fabric of our, our most important relationships and it harms the wider communities in which we participate. To disparage the, the reputation of another person, to, to warp reality to make it fit your needs, to, to lie, to bring a rival down is wrong. It's a sin. It's a sin because it harms the other person's reputation, but it is also a sin because it promotes a second lie. And the second lie goes like this. There's no such thing as reality. This past week, I've been reading a fascinating and sobering book by Gia Tolentino entitled Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion. Tolentino is a millennial who has written for a number of publications and online blogs, including The New Yorker and Jezebel. She's a wicked smart person. In her new book, Tolentino describes how, as, as a 10-year-old, she first encountered the internet. She spent her time visiting sites about Beanie Babies, those small collectible stuffed animals, and chatting with other kids about her collections. Tolentino describes the early days of the internet as being sort of sweet. People would patiently explain to each other how to behave. Don't use all caps, that's shouting. Tolentino was captivated by the internet's ability to, to connect her and other people with their shared interests. But today, of course, she recognizes that this connectional power isn't all in service to good. People with racist, misogynist, and sociopathic tendencies are also able to find each other online. The virtual world has some pretty dark corners to it. And this has occurred, Tolentino argues, because the internet has become more and more adept at telling us exactly what we want to hear. As the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, has made clear, social media is organized around the notion that a thing is important insofar 
as it is important to you. Using algorithms, social media platforms leverage this notion to figure out what is important to you and to work to give you more of it. Now, what does, all, what does this all-you-can-eat buffet of like-minded information do to us? Well, Tolentino argues, Facebook's goal of showing people only what they were interested in seeing resulted within a decade, and I quote, in the effective end of shared civic reality. In the effective end of shared civic reality. That's a startling claim. Do we no longer share the same reality? This week, in the aftermath of a school shooting in Los Angeles, I found myself thinking back to the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre that took place seven years ago this December. I remember the moment uh, I was talking with Charlene in my office when we heard about the horrific attack that claimed the lives of 26 people, many of them little tykes. I also remember that this church worked with my alma mater, Yale Divinity School, to provide the resources for a dedicated chaplain who worked with the families affected by this unspeakable tragedy in Newtown. In the aftermath of Sandy Hook, there was so much pain up there. And there was also something else running through our society, something unholy. An internet editor by the name of Alex Jones, who ran a website called InfoWars, a site visited by millions of people, began to suggest that the shooting was a hoax. It never happened, said Jones. Parents faked the death certificates of their kids. I was furious when these reports began to surface. I, I knew one of the chaplains who had sat with these families. How could anyone, why would anyone call Sandy Ho Hook a hoax? The comments that aired on InfoWars added a cruel twist to what was for these families already unimaginable pain. But the truly shocking thing, I think, is that these stories proliferated. There were copycats. Soon hundreds of online posts began asserting that the Sandy Hook massacre never happened. Some claimed that the parents were trying to profit off the deaths of their children, the fake deaths. This morning, I don't want to give the deranged authors behind these posts too much airtime. Their purposes were evil but I do want us to do a little soul searching and ask why did so many other people forward this content, repost this content? Why were there millions of reposts of this content? Is Gia Tolentino right? Are we so loosely tethered to reality that we're only willing to trust sources that confirm what we already believe.
If so, we're in bad shape. Our problem isn't simply our human propensity to lie. Our problem is that we have no commitment to or love for truth. Scripture agrees. Today's psalm provides an interesting perspective on our current state of affairs. The back story to Psalm 51 is one of the most painful accounts of lying and abuse of power in the Bible. You've heard the story before. King David has an affair with Bathsheba while her husband, Uriah, an officer in the army, is away at war. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. To cover up the affair, David schemes to have Uriah reassigned to the front lines to a spot where the fighting is most fierce. And sure enough, Uriah is killed in battle. David thinks he's gotten away with it all until the prophet Nathan pays a visit to his throne room. Nathan tells David that God is aware of everything that has transpired. God, Nathan declares, intends to punish the king for his duplicity and the terrible things he's done. Now at this point, the king comes to a fork in the road. Fork number one is a familiar one. The king can double down on his lies. After all, he's the monarch. He has vast power. He can make bad things happen to Nathan. He could make the prophet disappear. We know that this happens. A year ago, Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist critical of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, was killed by a Saudi Arabian hit squad in Istanbul. King David has that path open to him. There are other kings in the Old Testament that do that. They have prophets slaughtered. He can have Nathan murdered, and he could declare the whole matter a plot concocted by my enemies, an unscrupulous attempt to disperse my name. Fork number two, of course, is a less well-traveled path. On hearing Nathan's words, David could pause, examine his life and the appalling decisions that he's made, fall on his knees, confess his sin, declare his intention to make amends for all that he's done. This, of course, is an uncommon path. It's so uncommon in our world that we may actually find it laughable Why would anyone travel down fork number two? We have all sorts of rationalizations for why that's a bad way to go. Some argue that if we are ever to admit fault, we are betraying the fact that we are weak. Life is a struggle. It's a never-ending arm wrestling match. It's, it's my power versus your power. And I must never, in the midst of this struggle, admit to wrongdoing on my part because to do so is to confess my weakness. Others reject the path to repentance because they cannot admit, even to themselves, that they've done wrong. 
Think of David. He was the king. He didn't rise from lowly shepherd boy to the throne room of Israel by entertaining a whole lot of self-doubt. He was a confident man. But as we all know, there's a fine line between self-confidence and self-delusion. In other words, the first set of lies that David told was to himself. I'm the king. I, I deserve Bathsheba. Nah, not Uriah. My, my happiness is more important than Uriah's happiness. Uh, I, I'm sure that Bathsheba would rather be with royalty than with a, a military officer. My, my life is more important than his life. My pleasure is more important than the trust that my military has in the crown. There's no higher power than me. My ego knows what it wants, and it wants it now. Before David started lying to others, he had to tell himself a whole slew of lies. Earlier, I referenced the fact that psychologists observe that over 50% of us lie on surveys and I asked, why do we do that? Why do people lie about, about their education level or their charitable giving or, or how often they go to the gym? According to psychologists, we lie because we want the lies to be true. We're trying to kind of call them into being. We lie because over time we've convinced ourselves that, that reality ought to be different than it appears. In Dostoevsky's tremendous, you have to read it at some point in your life novel, the brothers Karamazov, Father Zosima, an Orthodox monk near the end of his life, summons a young monk, Alyosha Karamazov, to his bedside. The, the elder Zosima is about to give him his final counsel. And it goes like this. Above all, above all, do not lie to yourself. A man who lies to himself and who listens to his own lies comes to a point where he can no longer discern any truth either in himself or anywhere around him. Do not lie to yourself because once you lie to yourself, you become incapable of discerning truth in the world. These words are a little scary, right? They make you look, hmm, have I lost my ability to apprehend the truth? Have I wrapped my heart so tightly in deception that I can no longer tell the difference between reality and wishful thinking, between facts and opinions? Why do we tell lies like this to ourselves? Well, say psychologists, if you really dig down, we lie because we're afraid. Afraid of what? Well, afraid 
of the truth. <laughs> We're afraid that the truth will damage our earning potential, our relationships, our status in the world. I, I once watched a congregation member yell at a church employee, you'd better listen to me, I pay your salary. I knew the man was lying. <laughs> I knew because I'd once looked this fellow up in our database, he had never, ever given a dime to this church. <laughs> he was lying. He was lying because he wanted to be taken seriously. He skirted the truth, hoping that his complaint would land with more authority. This is how we operate, right? We lie because we fear the truth isn't good enough. We lie because we want to be someone other than who we are. We lie because we're afraid that a life dedicated to truth-telling means we will miss out. To borrow from the words of country singer Patti Loveless, our lying, cheating, cold, dead, beaten, two-timing, double-dealing, mean, mistreating hearts have convinced us that without all the lies, we're going to experience less fun, less profit, less ego strokes, less of what we want out of life. And that takes us back to Psalm 51. When people read Psalm 51 without knowing its backstory, they often complain to me that the author seems to be such a worm before God. The psalmist writes, my sin is ever before me. I've, I've done what is evil in your sight. I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. It all sounds so harsh. Who is this groveling fellow, people ask. And then I point them to the superscription, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Yeah, the psalm has some grovel in it. But for good reason. David's lies bring him momentary pleasures, but the drip by a caustic drip of the king's deceit also destroys his life. David's lies wreck his family and they do serious damage to the rule of law in ancient Israel. Eventually, the king's lies lead to the death of an innocent man. And when that happens, the prophet Nathan stops by for a visit. God confronts David, and David, to his credit, falls to his knees. David begs God to take a roto-rooter to his lion cheating heart. He asks God to replace deceit with truth. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. David acknowledges the pain his actions have wrought and he pleads that God might take him down a different path. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and put a new and right spirit within me. This is the sort of prayer we might want our national politicians to commit to memory. And that wouldn't be a bad thing. But first, 
Before we sit back with smug superiority, pointing our fingers at all the other liars out there, we people of faith need to reckon with the challenge that Psalm 51 presents to us. We need to commit ourselves to the truth. Now, what does that mean? One of the few times of late I've heard people express an overwhelming feeling of powerlessness in the face of the world's problems. I cannot make policy. I cannot help heal deep racial divisions. I cannot stop the spread of hatred on the internet. I cannot slow the rise in sea levels. Feeling powerless. Gia Tolentino writes, many people feel like the only thing they can do is form an opinion. And occasionally, when they feel brave, to express that opinion in a friendly online forum. There's a name for that sort of activity, says Tolentino. It's called virtue signaling. I'm going to find a safe space, air my opinion, look for a few likes and leave feeling like I've done some good in the world. Virtue, virtue signaling seems like harmless behavior. Here you are, you're one of about seven and a half billion people breathing right now. You've got a brief span of time on this planet. And in that brief span of time, you look around and you notice that there are problems all around you. In your school, in your workplace, in your country, in your world. But you feel insignificant and frightened by all that seems wrong and unjust and just plain messed up. So still, you want to do something, so you form an opinion. You run that opinion up and down a social media flagpole. You signal your virtue to others who share your opinion. (laughs) What could be wrong with that? It seems so harmless. And maybe that's the problem. Virtue signaling seeks affirmation and applause rather than testing and depth. It values hunches over facts. It turns the hard knock, earn your stripes, do your homework, search for truth into a click. It's solitary too, surprisingly solitary. These opinions people have are so rarely forged in a community, a real community, one in which there's diversity of opinion and background and context. Virtue signaling is also a form of self-deception. Online, in my safe little forum, I don't have to face up to the lies or flaws or just plain meanness stitched into my opinions. I have my opinion. You have yours. Who's to judge? Now, my friends, hear me out. There are things in life that belong to the realm of opinion. Who makes a better chicken sandwich, Chick-fil-A or Popeyes? Giants or Jets? My favorite color is purple, what's yours? These are opinions. But we cannot approach the most important discussions of the day 
as if our only option is to get together as a bunch of people sharing, shouting our opinions. We cannot act as if it's simply a matter of opinion as to whether or not Sandy Hook happened or whether or not polar ice is melting. We must engage on a deeper level. And the first step to pulling all this off, I think, is, like King David, to stop lying to ourselves. Regardless of cost, we have to stop telling ourselves exactly what we want to hear. This is, of course, the less traveled road. This is the far more demanding path. This is even more challenging than trying not to lie in those 10-minute conversations you're having. It is committing yourself to a search for truth. Truth, the search for truth, sends us looking for facts and puts us in dialogue with science. But truth doesn't stop there. Truth is more than simply elevating facts above opinions. Truth engages with history. Truth invites us to listen to the experience of other human beings. Truth plunges us into ritual practices. Bread of life, cup of salvation. Truth leads us to argue and debate. And truth also takes time to step back and contemplate self-examination. Truth encounters mysteries that cannot be put into words. And truth brings to our lips prayers that plead for help in the search. Prayers like David's prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. I need it. Truth. Truth stirs up love. It requires love. It stands on love. Our tradition is clear about this, is as clear as it is about anything. You cannot know the truth about yourself or your neighbor or your enemy or your family or your country unless you love them, unless you put on the eyes of God before you look at them. Last spring, as Abby reminded us, this church paid a visit to First Presbyterian Church in Jamaica, Queens, a congregation with whom we have a growing relationship. We've watched movies together. We've talked about some pretty serious stuff together. And uh, this past spring, we went out there. We heard, actually, Jake and Abby make a presentation. Uh, we sat around tables in their fellowship hall. We ate really good empanadas, and we talked about important issues. The associate pastor there, Chris Dela Cruz, served as our moderator. He asked provocative questions, and then we talked to each other around the table. At, at one point in the evening, Reverend Dela Cruz asked, have you ever had a police officer point a gun at you? I thought for a second and raised my hand. 
An African-American fellow to my left raised his eyebrow. Really, he said. Yes, I responded, thinking that my response might signal a little virtue and, and complicate the narrative around racial profiling. One night, when I was in college, I helped two newly engaged friends, Brent and Mary, move. It was late when we made our final stop, picking up a mattress at Mary's father's dentist office. He was a dentist, and he'd left a mattress there for his daughter. And from there, I was the one driving the pickup truck with the mattress in the back while the two lovebirds were ahead of me in a car. We hadn't gone too far from the dentist's office when six police cars surrounded me in the truck. I pulled over, the officers hopped out of their cars and drew guns. I later learned that a woman in the apartment building next to the dentist's office had called the cops to report that thieves were stealing drugs from the office and smuggling them out in a mattress. <laughs> My table companion looked at me. Were you scared? Yes, I responded. I was shaking. I'll bet, he said with a compassionate smile. And then he added one last soft-spoken question. Were you scared because you were white? Like King David, our society stands at a fork in the road. We can stay shackled to our self-deceptions. We can treat everything as if it's an opinion and float through life on the blissful clouds of pure subjectivity. Or we can risk fork number two. We can leave our lying, cheating, cold, dead, beaten, two-time and double-dealing, mean, mistreating hearts at the place where the road splits and unburdened, we can begin to walk the hard scrabble path that leads to the truth. It is, they say, a narrow way, but the views, it is rumored, the views are amazing. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Go from this place and seek the truth, trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another and the power and solidarity of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331. 
Thank you and God bless.